Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series, The Unseen Hand of God, Dr. Newfeld's going to bring us a message entitled Redemption. So turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Well, from my perspective, Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century was the greatest pastor the United States has ever seen. He was not only the principal preacher through the first great awakening, his writings, his sermons, and his theological and philosophical treatises are among the very best that America has ever seen. But I also think that he is among the finest pastors and theologians in the history of the entire church. His is certainly a life worth studying. I'm indebted to the influence of his writings on my own life. But Edwards has not only influenced his times and other times as well. His family, that is, the offspring of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, is probably among the significant families in America. More than 100 pastors came from his family, more than 100 lawyers, but also 13 college presidents, one dean of a medical school, 60 medical doctors, 30 judges, three United States governors, and three U.S. senators, and one U.S. vice president. You know, his is a remarkable family of godliness, but also of leadership and of excellence. And I have no doubt that God raised this family up for this very purpose. Now, I use that as an example that God not only raises up godly people, but he also raises up a legacy that often follows in its wake. Now, of course, the legacy of Edwards is but nothing, nothing at all when compared to the legacy of a man named Judah. You can't read the Bible without coming to terms with the significance of Judah. When Jacob, his father, lies dying, he says that Judah's brothers will praise him. Indeed, he promises that the ruler of the world will flow from Judah's family. We also know that the city of Jerusalem was given to the descendants of Judah. We know that King David came from Judah. We know that when all the other tribes of Israel had fallen into terrible idolatry, Judah, at least to some extent, continued to hang on, producing godly prophets and kings. Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all came from the tribe of Judah. Israel's greatest kings came from Judah, men like Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. You know, today's Jews, the name Jew is a shortened form of Judah. That is, it was the tribe of Judah that survived while others apostatized and were consumed by the nations around them. And of course, in Revelation 5, verse 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And furthermore, in this role, Jesus has conquered. See, there's no doubt that from Judah and his line came the nobility. God destined this tribe to bring forth the Messiah. You know, when so many of us think of the history of Israel, we should remember that the very best of her history always, always came from the descendants of that one man. Well, we've been studying the life of Joseph, and if you were to ask me, I would have said that it should have been the tribe of Joseph and not the tribe of Judah. I mean, after all, it was Joseph who remained faithful to his God. It was Joseph who became the second most powerful ruler in the world in his day. And it was Joseph that saved a good part of the world from starvation. And it was Joseph that saved his own family from the dysfunction and the slide into Canaanite idolatry. See, had Joseph not stepped into the breach, this family would have been lost. And we can't actually overstate the place of Joseph in bringing God's salvation into the world. 
I mean, Joseph, in so many ways, is what we like to call a type or a forerunner or a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. In contrast, Judah, well, he appears to be like an an unlikely hero. We encountered him back in Genesis 38, where he had left his family and he had raised wicked children and he had immersed himself in pagan religion and he visited temple cult prostitutes and he abandoned his duty to his daughter-in-law. But of course, we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge that God had given him grace, the grace of genuine repentance for his sins and his treatment of his daughter-in-law. He openly confessed her to be righteous and not himself. That did take the grace of humility. And we also know that after the birth of the twin boys from Tamar, Judah was never intimate with her again. He treated her after his sin with honor and clearly must have given her a place of dignity. I mean, why else would she have been so honored in the genealogies of Israel? And at least so it seems to me, Judah, who once left his family to become immersed in Canaanite culture and religion, well, he seems to have come back to his family. And even though that family was still as dysfunctional as it always had been, and, and when it came to joining his brothers in a trip to Egypt to buy food, Judah now expresses solidarity with the rest. He is going to save his family from starvation. At the very least, we might say he's no longer out only for himself, but he also seems ready to make sacrifices for the larger family. So it does seem to me that Judah has begun to experience the grace of God and that of the transformation of the inner life. But is that enough? That is, that he repented of his sins and came back to his family and joined them in buying food. I mean, that seems, well, not heroic, but rather a basic duty. Again, I'm left to wonder why doesn't God's plan of salvation will come from Joseph and not from Judah? Let's see if we can find out why. We've come to Genesis chapter 43. The nine brothers, that is the 10 minus Simeon, have returned from buying food in Egypt. And now they've consumed the food and they've got to go back. And as we've seen, this brings the family to the point of crisis. I'm reading now Genesis 43, verses 1 to 5. Now, the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Now, it's clear from this reading that at this point, even though he has gotten a good deal older, Jacob is still the head of the family. What he says is what the family does. His word is final. But we can also see that Jacob is beginning to make some very unwise decisions. He's not grasped the reality of the crisis his family is facing. His decision that they should go back to Egypt without Benjamin and go buy food, well, that's just simply foolish. It's going to end in disaster. And here now we see for the very first time, Judah takes leadership. Remember, if you will, the family's pecking order. Reuben is the oldest, but he has slept with his father's concubine, and his father will never trust him again. After that is Simeon, but he's, of course, now languishing in an Egyptian prison. Next is Levi, but he, with Simeon, has demonstrated remarkable cruelty and, well, Jacob won't trust him either. And Judah's next, and by all accounts, his father seems willing to listen to him. And from this time on, he becomes the spokesman for the family. If there were dealings to be had with dad, Judah is going to take the lead and dad is going to listen. And so he reminds his father that no matter how much they might have wanted things to be otherwise, this is their situation. 
But what's also significant here, and I think we shouldn't miss it, it's that Judah doesn't usurp his father. He doesn't just take Benjamin and run. He demonstrates excellent leadership. The family is as dysfunctional as it always has been, and his leadership, however, helps his brothers understand that dad will have the final say. But dad also needs to know the truth. And so after explaining that if they go without Benjamin, there's a high likelihood they're all going to die and that no food will be forthcoming, let's continue to read verses 6 and 7. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? So I want you to notice that at this point in our narrative, Moses is quite careful here not to use the name Jacob, but to use the name that God has given him, Israel. Moses wants to remind us, that is, the readers, that even while Israel may not be cognizant of the danger he is putting his sons under, and even though he may only be deeply concerned for one son, that is Benjamin, even though Jacob is acting in the very way that he's always acted, serving to bring a greater dysfunction to his family, yet, yet, he's still the man whom God has redeemed and chosen to bring the gospel to the world. See, there is a lesson here that we must not overlook. God has chosen this man. And even though the man that God has chosen is anything but perfect, he's still the man God has chosen. And for that reason, he must be respected. Well, you might remember that that Moses himself was often questioned regarding his own leadership. Once by his own brother and sister, once by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and of course, many other times as well. And Moses, like many others after him, didn't choose his own leadership. It was thrust on him by the will of God. And when God chooses a man, God also calls the rest of his people to respect the man whom he has chosen. Tom said, what Dr. John says makes so much sense, and he's opened my understanding of the Bible. Thanks, Tom. Your words of encouragement mean more to us than you might know. This October, we're giving thanks to our Savior for his provision and blessing in the lives of our listeners. There's so much being accomplished through Dr. John Newfeld and the Back to the Bible Canada team. And recently, a group of ministry partners graciously provided a cumulative ministry pledge gift of $50,000. Now listen, this gift has allowed us to participate in a donation match, where every dollar you give this month will be matched up to $50,000, allowing us to continue to change lives through the truth of God's Word. So to match your donation today, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us at backtothebible.ca. Israel doesn't want to send Benjamin to Egypt. He's frustrated and he's angry. Why did you boys even think of telling that man that you have a brother? And of course, at this point, all the brothers chime in. They retell the story. That man took initiative. How are we to know where this matter would go? Well, the whole thing again looks like a stalemate is going to ensue. Israel simply will not let Benjamin go. 
And it is at this moment that we see Judah stepping forward again. If you're hearing this story for the first time, you might be thinking, where did this leadership come from? For, you know, he seems so composed and he's genuinely respectful of his father. Indeed, after he's finished speaking, he convinces his father and and he puts his father's mind to rest. Well, let's read Genesis 43, 8 to 11. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. You know, what is it about Judah's speech that finally gets through? So please notice that in the last chapter, Reuben the oldest makes this outrageous statement. He says, if any harm comes to Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. Well, the statement is both repugnant and utterly ridiculous. What makes him think that Jacob would put his own grandsons to death for the death of Benjamin? I mean, how vicious does he think his father is? So if you think it through, Reuben's statement is an insult to his father. It's clear to Jacob or to Israel that he simply will not trust Reuben to lead. But now Judah is speaking. And Judah, rather than arguing that his father has favorites, simply says, let me be responsible for his safety. But he does more. Unlike Reuben's rash statement, Judah does not offer up his own children. He offers up himself. I myself will guarantee his safety. If I do not keep the boy safe, I myself will be the one who is held to blame. I won't blame it on circumstances. I won't blame it on my brothers, and I won't blame it on the ruler of Egypt. I and I only will be held to account for him. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus compares the good shepherd to the shepherd who's merely a hireling. This man takes care of the sheep in order to make a living. And when trouble comes, says Jesus, the hireling runs for his life. He's only in it for the money. He doesn't care for the sheep, and he certainly isn't going to risk his life for a flock of mutton on the hillside. In essence, that's what Judah is saying. I will be a good shepherd. I will die before Benjamin does. I'll lay down my life for my brother. See, it's not hard to see why it is that it's Judah, Judah, yes, who is the forerunner to Jesus, he who would ultimately lay down his life for the sheep. And then having given this pledge, oh, let me stop here. It must have seemed to Jacob that Judah's pledge was indeed worth something. Jacob knows that they aren't just words. Here's a man who will do as he says. Again, we're left to marvel at his transformation. There was a time when Judah abandoned his family. He was a man ready to abandon anyone if it suited him. He was a man concerned with only himself. But here's a picture of a man transformed by God. His his pledge comes with, as they say, with, with steel behind it. In essence, he's saying, I will die for Benjamin. And so having given his pledge, he now has earned the right to speak sternly to his father. If we had not delayed, we would have been there two times already. And that's the kind of schedule we've got to keep if we are to preserve this family. Father, you simply must act, and you must act now. And Israel listens. Suddenly, he wakes up. He's prepared to act. He's prepared to give leadership. Take up some of what you have left, he says, and prepare a gift for the ruler of the country. You know, in the ancient world, when you approached a king, that's the way that you would show respect. And Israel seeks to now act in just such a way that would honor the ruler of Egypt. 
And by the way, his mention of honey, well, I think that's, that's quite a treat in that day. You know, when famine ravaged the land, a sweet would be highly prized indeed. So let's continue. Verses 12 to 14. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So does Israel believe that the money that was returned in the sacks might have been an oversight or a mistake? Yeah, I think he holds it out as a genuine possibility. Well then, if it's a possibility, why not just take the money that he's returned and use it? Why return the money and then bring enough money for the second purchase of grain? And I think at this point, we do well to think also about the radical change that has happened in Jacob's life. When he was a young man, Jacob had stolen both his brother's birthright and his brother's blessing. He was happy then to to take what he could get by any means possible. And then there were the days when he was fighting with his father-in-law over every single sheep in his fold. He was a man accustomed to playing a pretty shrewd game in a world of of liars and cheats. He knew that in that kind of a world, he could best anyone. But that old Jacob is gone. Yeah, I know. He still has warts and faults, and he's a man given to favorites. He could have been so much better, both as a father and as a family leader. But if all we see are Jacob's faults, we miss the miracle of grace. He, unlike the old Jacob, was no longer willing to take money that didn't belong to him. If it was a mistake and no one had noticed, that money still didn't belong to him. Now, there's a wonder here that must not be missed, either in the life of Jacob or in the life of his son Judah. It's called redemption. It's called the transformation of the inner man. You know, Paul would speak of that in numerous places. He spoke of it in 1 Corinthians 6 when he marveled that many from the church had been sexually immoral and idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. But he said, then you were washed. You were made holy. And Paul would emphasize it again in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I know some people have struggled as, as to how it could be that in 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul could, present tense, call himself at the end of his life, the foremost, or as other translations put it, the chief of sinners. But here is the mystery. The heart is made new, but the flesh still remains in the arena of the fight. That is, until Christ returns. Imperfect people who have been made new. That's fascinating. And that is the nature of the Christian life. And what is captivating to me is, as we examine the the First Testament saints, is that they also, along with us, experience the reality of the new birth, the making of a new man or woman, because of the redeeming grace of God. And Jacob ends this section by doing something altogether uncharacteristic. Rather than saying to Judah, I'm going to hold you accountable, he says, if I'm bereaved of Benjamin and my other children, I'm bereaved. May God grant all of us mercy. It's a statement of faith. He entrusts himself and his children into God's merciful hands, and now he moves forward. Genesis 43 gives us a glimpse into the transformation of two outstanding First Testament saints, Jacob and his son Judah. In Judah's case, we will see that the marks of his change have only begun. He will be true to his word to his father. And as we will see, 
he offers himself up to suffer in the place of his brother. He truly becomes the forerunner of the greater son who did the same for us. This is the story of redemption. This is the story of how the world changed because of God's redemption of two men. It's easy then to to read this and to reflect upon ourselves. And as I do personally for myself, I'm reminded that I'm not yet the man that I should be, and I'm not yet the man I will one day become. But when Christ returns and I receive a new body, I'll never struggle with the flesh again, and I will at all times serve my Master and Savior fully, and I will live to His glory and to His alone. But I also know this about myself today. I have now been made new. I am not what I once was. And for all of you who now know Christ, give thanks to God, for it's true of you as well. And for all of you who wonder, what would it be like for me should I surrender my life to Christ? Listen, this is a template for you. It can be the beginning of your story when you are redeemed. Surrender to Christ and watch him change you and see the adventure of his grace begin. John, we may have discussed this before, but it's always something that comes up in my own mind. And it's that whole thing about, you know, how does God choose people? And because some of the most uh, different types of people you would think take leadership and we would never have chosen them ourselves, but God chooses whom he would choose. Is that is that what we're thinking here? Yeah. You know, and, and this is inexplicable in many ways. I mean, I suppose we're always going to look at this you know, from our human vantage point and scratch our heads and wonder, you know, why that person, I can think of a lot of other people who should have been chosen by God to do whatever it is. Um, I suppose one of the answers is that God will not share his glory with anyone else, and so he will always choose maybe unlikely vessels of his grace to do his greatest work. That might be the case. Of course, it doesn't mean that we're not called upon to be faithful in all things and to do all things to the glory of God and to step to the fore. I mean, Isaiah said, you know, here am I, Lord, choose me. Uh, So, you know, I think there's always that part of it. Um, But at the same time, uh, when it's all said and done, we should never look at someone who has been used greatly by God to do wonderful things and to say, well, they got there because of their own good works. God will not share his glory with us. And I Whatever else we learn, it's got to be that lesson. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience has become a staple of ministry over the last number of years. Friends from across Canada gathered together to join Dr. Neufeld, Phil Calloway, and special musical guests for an incredible journey through the Holy Land. One friend after joining us in Israel shared, again, thank you for this wonderful trip. Like you said, the Bible has really taken on new life for us. This has been the experience of so many. Experience Israel for yourself under the teaching of Dr. Neufeld. Worship in the places where Jesus lived, walked, and taught and you'll never read the Bible the same way again. Join all of us, Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and the entire team in 2021 for Back to the Bible Canada's Israel Experience. For more information, visit backtothebibletours.ca 
or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.